our four pillars at Daylight Church is, as you can see, the topic of study and apologetics. It's asking the difficult questions of faith, and that's, that's one of our three core values. We're starting to rebrand and move our pillars into some core values, and you'll, you'll hear some more announcements about that coming up. But we, one of our core values is that no question is left off the table. And so we've set up this website or this, this web address, uh, email address, text address, questions at daylightchurch.com to allow you guys to send in whatever's on your mind, whatever you're dealing with, whatever questions you have, whatever disagreements you have with whatever you hear from up here. We're not afraid of any of it, and we're open to talking about it. And in fact, I just heard from somebody this morning how thankful they were that we tackled one of the questions that we dealt with last, last week. And this particular person said, I've, nobody else has ever been brave enough to do that. And so I, I want to be a church that's brave when it comes to di the difficult questions of faith. And one of those questions is on the topic of church discipline and excommunication, like you see in the movie clip, on the topic of shunning. Is there, is there ever a case where the church should turn their back on someone? And we're, So I received a question on that topic from someone who's experienced something similar, and we're going to get to that, but not immediately. We're, we're going to get to it in just a little while. First, I want to share with you one of, one of the best questions I've received in a long time, which came from Drew Barron. And Drew Barron is four years old at this point. She is four, and she sent in a question via her mother, Kate, and the question was this, when we die, do we have to dress like Jesus? <laughs> Which I thought was a great question, and really, as I, as I pondered it, I don't want to just dismiss it as a child's question. It's, it, the idea, ideas of heaven and what's expected of us and who we're going to be are, are kind of important questions, and so uh, my, my first reaction was just to say, don't knock it until you try it. Now, <laughs> I'll, I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and let you guys cross this off your bucket list, a bucket list item you didn't know was on there. But if you ever want to know how I spend my Sunday afternoons when I'm not answering the phone and not checking Facebook or my emails, that's it. And you'll also notice the black old man dress socks with the white, the white robe. And that's why Jesus is always cut off in all these pictures. <laughs> It's because he knows what's good, and so I'm sure he rolled with it. When we're talking about heaven, we're talking about the afterlife, uh, we, we have these images of angels playing harps on clouds, and I don't think Scripture even, in fact, it's interesting, Scripture doesn't even call the afterlife and where we'll spend the afterlife for those that have eternal life. Uh, it doesn't even really describe it as heaven. Instead, it describes what they call a new heaven and a new earth, and we've talked about it in here before that in in ancient times, when they talked about the heavens, there were, there were different levels of that. In, in some sense, the, he, the new heavens will be this new stars, the new cosmos. It means all things will be made new. And it talks about a new earth. And so it, the, the indication is that whatever happens to the redeemed, um, those, those who have eternal life, it, it talks about them drinking wine from cups, riding horses, wearing clothing, having tattoos, talks about rivers and streets and gates, and it's, it's a touchable, tangible place. So I don't want to just dismiss the, the idea of what do we wear. My, my basic answer to Drew's question is I'm really not sure, and, and, and it's kind of impossible to know, but Scripture does seem to describe that it's going to be a real, tangible place, that God seems to be into the spiritual connecting with the material. And there's passages in, in the book of Revelation that... that describe what we'll be wearing, but then you don't know if it's supposed to be literal or, or allegorical or figurative. And so it talks about those who will be redeemed as walking with Jesus dressed in white, and the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. And so 
We don't really know if this is that you will literally wear the white robe, and I hope it won't be a white bathrobe, but a white, we don't know that. But what we do know is that there's some kind of symbolic purity that's described. When, when, when you, you watch a woman walk down the aisle of her marriage wearing a white dress, for, for most of history, that white dress has been symbolic of purity, of her giving herself over to her husband. And so there's, there's symbolism behind the idea of white clothing that may mean that we have been purified, we have been made clean, we have been washed, or it may be literal, and we just don't really know. But we know that when Jesus was with his disciples, there was a moment where they saw the glory of God on him, and it describes his clothing as being as bright as a flash of lightning. So it seems to indicate that Jesus is into the white garb for some reason. But then the two people who appeared with Jesus in this same scene... It says they appear in glorious splendor. And so that's, that's the focus, in my opinion, of what it will be like, is we, we look at clothing and this out, external, outward thing as something really important, and I suspect in those days it, it will not carry the same weight. It will be a return to what the Bible describes as paradise, so the Eden state, the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, what did they wear? They didn't wear a jack. They wore nothing. And this is, I mean, this is, this is how I define glorious splendor, right? I'm walking, hey, glorious splendor, baby. You know, it's the birthday suit, right? So <laughs> if, we're, if we're nothing here, we're transparent, right? So if it's a return to the east, I, I just suspect, and there's this idea. It says that they were naked and unashamed. It means we don't have to hide anything anymore. We don't have to cover anything anymore. That we are who we are, and it's glorious and wonderful. Now, whether that means we'll be wearing literal clothing or not, I don't know. It is objectively true that, that Sense and Sensibility is the greatest movie of all time. We've talked about that in here. It is objectively true. This is, this is, this is scientifically demonstrable, okay? I, I'm joking. I'm exaggerating. But it's objectively true that Les Mis is the greatest musical of all time. This is something we've talked about in here recently. And I am going to present to you the greatest book of all time outside the Bible because I know I'll be accused of blasphemy if I don't throw that caveat out there. Is The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis actually addresses this idea of going to heaven and kind of what we will wear. And there's multiple passages throughout the book. You can read the book in an afternoon. I, I really encourage it. It's a, it's a really incredible book. But in it, these ghosts or spirits arrive at the outskirts of heaven. And they, they're not made to be there. They're, they're having to be transformed. So the grass, whereas we would step on the grass and the grass would lay over and bend under our feet, and they're, 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 they're not solid enough to bend the grass. So the grass actually feels like spikes to their feet. They're just, they're just not equipped to be in heaven at this point. And so the, the goal is that as they approach Jesus, that they will become solid. And they will, they will become transformed in a sense where they can be in a place where they never could have been before. But in this one particular passage, he's talking about one of these ghosts. And he says, a ghost hobbled across the clearing, looking over its shoulder as if it were pursued. I saw that it had been a woman, a well-dressed woman, I thought, but its shadow of finery looked ghastly in the morning light. It was making for the bushes. So this woman who was used to looking good because of her apparel found that when she arrived in heaven, she looked awful in comparison. Like even the greatest fineries of life look terrible, even on the outskirts of heaven. Glorious splendor isn't even being revealed at this point. It's just on the outskirts, the shadows of heaven, that she feels like she needs to hide in the bushes because she doesn't 
belong there. And then it says one of the bright people came in sight. And, and she says, go away, squealed the ghost. But you need help, said the solid one. Can't you understand anything? Do you really suppose I'm going out there like this? But why not? I'd never have come at all if I'd known you were all going to be dressed like that. And then the solid one says, friend, you see, I'm not dressed at all. We're all a bit ghostly when we first arrived. You know, that'll, that'll wear off. And she's still overly concerned with her appearance. She says, but they'll see me. Well, what does it matter if they do? I'd rather die. But you've died already. <laughs> There's no good trying to go back to that. And the ghost makes a sound something between a sob and a snarl. It says, I wish I'd never been born. What are we born for? And then the solid one responds, for infinite happiness. And you can step out into it at any moment. Step out away from something into something. And that into something is infinite happiness. She says, but I tell you, they'll see me. And this is the part that I think for Drew's question is so important. The solid one says, an hour hence, you will not care. A day hence, you will laugh at it. When we go on to the afterlife, when we go after Jesus and achieve his kingdom and enter in to what the Bible describes as rest, there's going to be nothing left behind that we're going to consider valuable. There's so many, and one of the other questions we're going to address today is along these lines, but whether it's your apparel, whether it's your, your prestige and reputation, whether it's the home that you had, all of it is going to look ghastly in the light of the glorious splendor that is Jesus and is God. And so th when, when it comes to our clothing, First Peter tells us a little bit about how we should adorn ourselves. And it says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty. Now, I don't think this passage necessarily says you shouldn't wear makeup, you shouldn't braid your hair, or you shouldn't wear jewelry. I think it's saying something else. And I think it's, there's, there's a word that's repeated twice in here, and it has a root word that's going to be very important. What, does anybody notice a word that's repeated twice? Anybody see that right off? Adorning. Adorning is mentioned twice. Now, what is the root word where we get adorning? Adore, right? So it's adorable. It's uh, adoration. We give our adoration to someone. It all comes from the same root of adore. And so what this passage is saying is don't, be what is, don't let what is adoration worthy in you be what you wear. It says make, there's, there needs to be something admir admirable about you, something people admire, something that people adore, something that is worthy of adoration that has nothing to do with the clothing that you have on. It has nothing to do with the hats that you wear or the makeup you put on or the, the gold watch that you wear. It has nothing to do with that. It's not saying you can't have those things. It's saying don't let that be what's adorable about you. Don't let that be where your adoration comes from. But where does it say your adoration com should come from? Something hidden in your heart, something in internally beautiful. Paul tells us in Galatians that all of us who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ or clothed ourselves with Christ. So when it comes to the afterlife, I think external clothing, external material things are going to be quite trivial and pretty unimportant and couched in something really spectacular. But when it comes to this life and what, what, do we do, what do we wear, what do we put on, 
it says that we're supposed to put on Christ. And what that means is that if somebody's going to admire something about you, let it be something internal that they see Christ in. Christ, the perfect loving, perfectly sacrificial, perfectly wonderful friend that is close and closer than a brother. And so if you want to know what you're supposed to look like in this life, that's what you're supposed to look like. So that's my answer to Drew's very wonderful question. And then we got this uh, pretty intense question based on uh, th that's connected to the movie clip we showed from the movie The Shining. And the movie The Shining is like a lifetime network type thing, so I was a little embarrassed to even do the editing. But there it is. 1 Corinthians 5. Both my wife and I have had this chapter of the New Testament used to expel us from fellowship with family and church fellowship. It's a difficult passage for my wife in particular because it was a scripture basis for her family to encourage her children not to visit with her or to stay overnight. So we see a movie clip like this and we say, does that really happen? Yes, it does. It absolutely happens. Um, for me, it was the scripture used to expel me from fellowship due to my addiction issues. How do we reconcile these passages in today's complex world? Well, I, I don't think I'm exaggerating to say that I have spent more time and effort on the passage 1 Corinthians 5 than any other passage in Scripture because it haunts me. Uh, I, I've got this picture of Jesus hanging on a cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I believe in the concept that mercy triumphs over judgment and that love covers over a, mercy, uh, a multitude of sins. And so then you find this passage in 1 Corinthians 5 that basically says if somebody is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater, it says don't even eat a meal with that person, which is the quote that you saw in the movie. He says, with such a one, do not even eat. And that, that phrase, with such a one, do not even eat, has probably been used in what I would, what I would describe as a lot of abusive situations where, where church discipline is concerned. And so I want to dive into this passage. I want to talk about, uh, you know, is, is, it, is it something we need to really consider is it something that was, was, was in context in the culture and we can kind of ignore it? Let's just, let's just dive into it a little bit, but let's read the passage to start off. 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported, actually reported, he starts off. Can you believe it? It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind even the pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. So a man is in an incestuous relationship with his mother-in-law. And the Corinthian church are high-fiving the guy. These people in the, in, the church, in the church are saying, hey, you go, man. And they're proud of him. And then Paul says this. He says, don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? We'll get into what that means in a moment. I wrote not to associate with sexually immoral people, not all, at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. But now I'm writing about anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Do not even eat with such people, Paul says. That's tough. What business is of it is mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So this is one of those passages that when I'm reading the Bible and I'm pastoring a church, I want to just kind of ignore. I want to just say, well, that doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem right, so let's put it on the back burner and recognize that it's out there and pseudo-dismiss it. But I don't want to ever be that pastor. I really don't. And so, I, I, man, I've thought and thought and thought about this passage and how it ties in with all kinds of different parts of Scripture. And when it comes to figuring out a passage like this, I think there's a lot of questions we have to ask about what we call our biblical hermeneutic, which is the lens that we read Scripture through. 
And there's a bunch of questions that when you come to a difficult passage of Scripture that it's important to ask. And here's, here's just some of them that I threw out there. Um, so who was the author? What, who was the author and who, who was the author writing to and in what context? And this is important because if I, if I write Termaine a letter and say, hey, man, thanks for being at my daughter's birthday weekend this, this weekend, and thanks for the gifts, and you're great, and, and your, your gifts were way better than the gifts that my sister Megan bought for my daughter. So good job, man. And, 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 then I, and, then I, and then I go on to some other stuff that we were talking about, Jordan Peterson and his views on race, and, some of this, you know, and, I'm, and, and we start talking about race issues between he and I, and then let's pretend that Dennis finds a copy of that letter. And Dennis starts to apply the things that I've said to Termaine, to himself. Is that very wise on Dennis's part? Or does he need, if he wants to figure out me and my desires and my will and who I am, he should probably read it in context of me and my friend Termaine writing and then find the underlying ideas underneath it. But be careful about applying the specifics to himself. And I think part of this passage that we're dealing with has some of that in it, is that we want to apply it to today's church where he, he was writing a particular church at a particular time. Then you deal with is the passage prescriptive, descriptive, or a mix. And so there's some passages of scripture where we are prescribed a behavior that the, the passage is clearly meant to be followed and taken from and applied to our lives. There's other passages of scripture, the book of Job is a perfect example of this, that are replete with ideas that are describing what someone thought, describing who someone was, describing someone's ideals, but not supposed to be prescribed to us at all. We're not supposed to follow them. There's lots of passages in the Old Testament where, where it seems like God wants you to cannibalize your children. And if we read those out of context, if we read them in, as prescriptive for the whole church, we end up in a disaster. But if we, describe, if we realize that they are descriptive of what was happening at the time and how people viewed God, it changes some things, and I think there's a little bit of that in this passage. I don't want to get away from the tension in the passage, but we have to say, does a simple reading sound like Jesus? Because I, I heard it said recently that we ask the question a lot of times, is it scriptural, when what we need to ask is, does it sound like Jesus? Because Jesus is the consummation of all scripture. And then there's questions of, if it's unclear, if we're not sure how to handle this passage, what basic biblical principles can take precedence? So as we read the whole Bible as a whole and apply it to this passage, what does that end up looking like? And then finally, just again, back to this idea about Jesus is, what Jesus' themes can we take away? Now, if you're interested in this passage like I am, if you're the person that wrote the question, I'm going to encourage you to find uh, a, an article online called Shame the Incestuous Man by Derek McNamara. And... Uh, this man wrote a 260-page doctoral thesis on 1 Corinthians 5, talking about the culture of shame that existed at that time, talked about the Romans, talked about a patron-client relationship that was probably going on in this passage. But the nice thing is that this thing has been consolidated into a 16-page journal entry in a professional journal that you can read and kind of get his 260-page doctorate done in about an hour. And so if you really want to know the cultural context of what was going on in 1 Corinthians 5, I'm not going to go through his doctoral thesis with you guys today. But it is out there if you're interested and you want to read more. But I want to point out just a few little portions of this passage and talk about uh, what they mean and what they might have meant to them at that time and then sort of um, how it applies to us today. So it starts off with, don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? And anybody who's a baker knows that when you use yeast, you use a tiny, tiny little bit of yeast. And so the, the bread rises as a part of, 
adding that little portion of yeast. So what he's saying is it doesn't take much to get in there and change everything, so be careful. That's what Paul's saying to these people right now. His intent on this, in this passage, and in, in fact in all of 1 Corinthians for the first part, is to control chaos. Apparently the Corinthian church was an absolute mess in a thousand different ways. And this is one of the ways he's addressing. So if you read 1 Corinthians 1 through 4, you'll see a whole bunch of other ways. And he's just addressing the chaos going on at the church. And then he says, on top of all that chaos, you got this guy who's sleeping with his mother-in-law, and you guys are high-fiving the guy. And it doesn't make sense to him. And that's what he's addressing. He says, don't, don't let the church be so thoroughly corrupted by one person. But when you read Derek McNamara's uh, thesis... What you find out is that this guy was not, he wasn't just a guy in the congregation, but the odds are he was what they would call a patron in the congregation. He was probably the one, he was providing the rent for the theater they met in. He, he was the guy in the congregation. He was a man of social status, so he was considered patron status, whereas most of the people were considered client status. So he was a bigwig, and because he was a bigwig, the church was letting him get away with stuff that they probably wouldn't let a normal Joe get away with. And so it goes on, and it gets to this really hard statement. Do not even eat with such people. So in the case of the questioner today, I know that the questioner went through a divorce, and the questioner's former husband, in the, question, the lady involved in the question, her former husband encouraged, and kind of their church, encouraged the kids to shun her. Said, you don't need to be go spending time at their house. You need to make it very clear that what they're doing is wrong and immoral. With such a one, do not even eat. And this particular line has been used throughout hundreds of years to enforce such situations. Now, when you understand the, the patron-client relationship of ancient Rome, what you find is that the patron probably, maybe, and, and, and all of this is conjecture. I, I have other ideas that can fit into this passage as well. But maybe this guy was kind of the superhero of the church, and he's throwing parties all the time, and people are going to these parties and then bragging about being at the parties. So this guy can do absolutely no wrong. He's, he's the one funding the church, making things happen. He's the superhero of the church, and he can do no wrong. And people are celebrating being connected to him because he's a bigwig. And Paul says, that's got to stop. He says, don't go to this guy's parties. Don't, don't go hang out with this guy and, and, and feed the beast, so to speak. And so in this culture, to eat with someone, to sit across the table from someone, meant much, much more than it means to us today. It was, it was, a, it was a symbol of status. It was a symbol of connection. It was, it, it was a symbol of association. Uh, it, says, it says somewhere in here, do not even associate with such a one. What business is it to judge those? Um, it was a symbol of I am one with you when you sat across the table and ate with someone. That's why when Jesus eats with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners, the religious people of his time are ashamed of that. They're shocked by that. How could he possibly eat with a prostitute? Because to eat with one is to claim similar status as one. That's what's happening in this passage, and that's what Paul is putting the brakes on. And then we get to what I consider the most important part of the passage. So he says, he says don't try to judge everybody, all the non-Christians. He says, if the, if the non-Christians are sexually immoral and idolaters and, and gossips and, and slanderers or, what, or whatever else, greedy people, he says, that's not your job. He says, that, forget about it. That's not, that's not for you to judge. But we are supposed to judge those inside the church. Now, what happens is we are so used to hearing the word judge and translating it as the word condemn. That's what we do. We, when we say don't judge me, 
what most of the time that sentence means is don't condemn me. Because we equate the two, judge and condemn. But when he wrote this, and, and basically in, in reality, that's not what the word judge means. The word judge means to rightly discern, to make good judgments about, to have wisdom concerning. So when we read this passage, he says you're supposed to judge the sinners inside the church. We read you're supposed to what? You're supposed to condemn those in the church. But that's not what Paul's saying here at all. He's saying you're supposed to make a right judgment. You're supposed to discern correctly to decide what should be the result of this situation. So we can't automatically navigate to condemnation and treat the, real, the original language with any kind of respect. Instead, we look at it as a judgment. And then he says this. He says, expel the wicked person from among you. And what we do is we take this list of sins, sexually immoral, greedy, idolater, slander, drunkard, swindler, and we say to judge them, which means we are supposed to condemn those who act that way, and we automatically go from A to B to C, and C is we expel them from the church. So we say someone who is sexually immoral, we condemn them, expel them from the church. Someone who is greedy, we can, and we're in really trouble if we get into this in Western culture. Someone who is greedy is supposed to be out of the church. We can't, we got to close the doors, basically. What's that? Nobody's inside. Well, and, and that gets into a huge question about this is how can any of us arrive? How, 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 how do any of us deserve to be here? But we take the sin, we condemn the sin, we expel the person. But that's not what this says. This says this guy is a disaster. And when he gives this list, he's probably jabbing at the guy saying he is sexually immoral. And he's greedy. And he's a slanderer. And he's an idolater. He's saying this guy is a total mess. But then he uses the word wicked at the end. He says, expel the wicked person from among you. And so here's how, here's how I view the, the entirety of this passage is we are supposed to make right judgments about who is and isn't wicked. And if there is wickedness, it messes up a whole lot of things. The problem is we take a lady who's going through a painful divorce that has children who has probably been in an abusive situation and because we go from A to B to C so easily, we go from the mess. It's a mess. It is. There, we can't get around that. Divorce is, is, is not God's ideal for human beings. But we take that and we tie it into this passage and we say, because you're in a mess, we will condemn you and therefore kick you out of our church. And we take the person in a mess and we condemn and call them wicked. And in my opinion, that's a mistake. There is a difference between a wicked person, and so in this case, a wicked person could be a violent person. A wicked person could be somebody who doesn't give a rip what the church thinks, doesn't give a rip what anybody thinks. They do what they want to do when they want to do it, and they brag about it to their friends, and they won't listen to any wisdom, and that's the case you find here. And in a case like that, it's trouble for the church, and that person needs to be disciplined. But if there's a case where a person is going through a hard time, difficult, confused, isn't sure what's right from wrong, maybe making, some of you will make big decisions that are different than the decisions I will make, but it doesn't make you wicked. It doesn't make you evil, and it doesn't make you worthy of shunning and worthy of kicking out of the church. Now, Jesus himself dealt with church discipline. He said this, he said, if your brother sins against you, tell him. Take one or two others, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now we read this through our 
Western lens, and we say, okay, well, he's kicking people out of the church. I want to point out something to you. He says, treat them as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. Did Jesus say to the Gentiles or the tax collectors, I refuse to sit across the table from you? Mm -mm. See, this is where Jesus turns things on his head. Jesus will use the way they think and twist it around in such a way and make things all new. And what he says in this situation, so he got in trouble all the time because he sat with the Gentiles and the tax collectors. Because he let the prostitutes weep over his feet and dry his feet with their, with their hair when they've wept all over his, over his feet in the middle of, 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 a, of a dinner with the religious elite. That's how he treated the, the tax collectors and the Gentiles. And so when we take it all into stride, when we take it all together, I think the idea that if someone is getting a divorce, you've kicked them out of the church because they won't listen to reason is absolutely absurd. If you find somebody, if, if I went around the room and said, how many of you have a serious porn addiction? and we kicked all of you out of the church, the church would be in big trouble. If I went around the room and said, how many of you are too materialistic, you're overly concerned with what you put on of a morning, none of us would be able to show up. I think we have to let mercy be the lens that we view these passages through. It doesn't mean there's not tension. It's like we've talked about. There's this tension between mercy and justice, between exclusivism and inclusivism. There's these tensions that we exist in, but they're healthy places to be. So when you read this passage, there's some guiding principles that you find. Christians are held to a high standards in terms of sexuality, material possessions, and worship. We are, and we should be. There's no getting around that. If we're going to emulate Jesus and claim to be followers of Jesus, we should act like Jesus and, and, and at least attempt to pursue Jesus. Ecclesia, which is the Greek word for, that we get church from, is a community of accountability. So many people want churches today where nobody ever tells you you're doing anything wrong. And that's not a very healthy church to be in either. So in this passage, you find out that if somebody is a mess, they need to be told that they're a mess. Wickedness cannot be tolerated, so if someone doesn't give a rip, doesn't care, doesn't care about the church, is willing to drag the church down into hell with them, it needs to be dealt with. But we find out that it needs to be determined by sound judgment and marked by an attitude in them. So this is the difference, is judgment versus condemnation. We make good judgments versus automatically driving people down. But then there's other guiding principles. The battle cry of Daylight Church is... Mercy triumphs over judgment. It says, he who loves, love one another deeply because love covers over a, multiple, a multitude of sins. If we have to go with the base principles of how we treat people, how we handle church discipline, mercy and love are going to be the foundational truths that we hold on to as we navigate our way through these very challenging and very difficult passages that do call us to task. We can't get around that. They do call us to task, and rightly so. We should be called to task. But when it comes to how do we, when do we literally turn our back on someone, I think those situations are reserved for the worst of the worst of the worst and very rare. Last point on this. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians, he writes about the incestuous man, the man sleeping with his mother-in-law. Okay, it's kind of a big deal in the church. In, in the second book, he writes about his first book, and he says this. He says, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart. He was really upset when he wrote 1 Corinthians 5. He says, with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. And then he refers to what is probably a, a reference back to this guy, this incestuous guy. He says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, to reaffirm your love for him. 
Another reason I wrote was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. So some of this, Paul seems to indicate, was a challenge to the church to see whether they would step up and do something in a kind of tragic situation. But then he says these words. He says, anyone you forgive, I forgive. You see this principle of the mercy of God coming out. And odds are this passage is referring to the previous passage because there's really no other good place to connect it to. He says, I wanted to see if you guys would listen. Apparently the guy is really, this is really hard on him. Make sure he knows you love him. So don't continue to turn your back on him, but continue to greet him with open arms. I have one more question and three minutes to do it in. Here's the question. I feel like the Christian lifestyle is all about doing good and not doing bad things, and that sounds boring. <laughs> this is not a question. It's a statement. It's a couple statements, but there's a question underneath it. And my response to it is threefold. Number one, I would want to define good and bad. Uh, when we talk about doing good and doing bad, if you mean what is good is what is thriving for human beings, what is best for human beings, what brings the greatest joy into life, the greatest security, the greatest protection, the, the greatest healing, then uh, yeah, yeah. And if by bad you mean stuff that totally destroys human beings and takes them down a, a, a trail that they shouldn't go down, well, uh, let's, if, if we're defining them that way, then go with boring if that's what you have to do. But it won't be boring. Christianity is not about what you do, it's about who you follow. So Christianity, by definition, means to follow Jesus. And we follow one who is perfect in hope, serenity, power, love, and described as the Prince of Peace and the author of joy. And so when we talk about boredom, I don't equate mercy and hope and love and peace and joy with boredom. I think that's, that's hard to do. What, what would you give in your life to have consummate joy? I mean, as people strive for it and hunger for it and, and do anything they can have to get a hold of it, and it's evasive. They, can't, they, they try to touch it, and it slips through their fingers. And Jesus, the one we follow, is the one who says, I'll give it to you, and I'll give it to you till it overflows and comes out your eyeballs. What would you give for peace? What would you give for power to overcome what is awful in the world? And so I, I think to say Christianity is about doing good and bad is, is probably inaccurate where, it, where Christianity is concerned. I think it's more about... Who do you follow? And the one that we follow is the one that the Spirit said earlier, what we were born for is for infinite happiness. I am convinced that the way to transcendent joy, not temporary satisfaction, not temporary this feels nice, um, not getting by in the world, but real human existential eternal thriving comes through the revelation of God to man who was Jesus Christ. And I'm unashamed to say that. I don't think it's boring. I don't think it will ever be boring. I think for eternity, it will not be boring.